Welcome to Triangle 411, the pulse that moves the Triangle world today. It's a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, what's trending, social good, events, and boundless other adventures. A conversation pit of comedians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Innsbrucker. Hi friends, this one goes out to Jesse and Mike. Brittany Woodrum began a project back in July 2020 to climb all 58 Colorado 14ers. That's the 58 14,000 foot peaks named by the U.S. Geological Survey to raise money for the disaster relief nonprofit Shelterbox. But that's not all. She climbed with the iconic and large Shelterbox on her back to raise money and awareness for displaced families. She finished her goal hiking over 540 miles and over 232,000 feet of elevation. Quite a feat. Of course, in times of disaster, each iconic green shelter box contains a disaster relief tent for an extended family, blankets, a water filtration system, emergency lighting, and other tools for survival. The University of Kentucky alum and Rotary Peace Fellow candidate became a shelter box ambassador nearly a year ago when she began her master's in humanitarian assistance at the University of Denver. Let's welcome her now. Good day and thanks for being here. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. So, You were quarantined at home due to the current pandemic, and rather than just sit around and and gain the quarantine 15 like a lot of us did, you decided to do something big. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, this past summer, uh, essentially in the midst of COVID-19, I all of a sudden found myself with a free summer, Um, and a little bit about myself, so I'm a pretty service-oriented individual. Um, eventually, it's my hope to work in humanitarian assistance, which is actually what I happen to be um, studying in grad school. And so whenever I found myself with this free summer and wanting to, to make an impact and wanting to do something with that, I thought um, at the same time, you know, I, I saw this growing need around the world, especially in these very vulnerable corners uh, or with these very vulnerable communities around our planet. And I thought there's got to be something that I can do that would make a big positive impact while making a minimal negative impact. Uh, And I live out in Colorado. And so I was sitting in my apartment looking out at the mountains and I thought, you know, it seems fitting that I should go out and find some physical mountains to climb to see as this global community are trying to come together to overcome this very metaphorical and in some ways very physical mountain that is, COVID-19. So um, in July of this past year, in 2020, I started out um, climbing all of Colorado's 14ers. So that is um, mountains above 14,000 feet. There are 58 of them in Colorado. Um, started out in July and climbed my last one in late September, raising money for the disaster relief organization Shelterbox, all with their iconic aid box on my back. Okay, so we're so, we're going to get into more. My <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, I wish we could all say that. 
<laughs> I wish we could all say we did something so glorious. But uh, why did you pick Shelterbox? Uh, well, I'd already been working with Shelterbox before this project. So whenever I moved back to the U.S., I'd been working abroad already for uh, about four years. Um, and like I said, I was looking to start my career path more towards humanitarian assistance specifically. So whenever I moved to Denver to start my grad degree, I was looking for a way both to get involved in the my new community of Denver, as well as the greater community of humanitarian assistance. I did a little bit of research, found Shelterbox, emailed them, and they sent me back an email very enthusiastically, and I was like onboarded that week. So this was over a year ago, something like September 2019. And I was really just struck by their mission. You know, they focus on shelter, um, but more than just shelter. They are able to provide so many basic amenities that individuals and communities who have lost everything um, need in, in a quick response. Great. Now, how much money did you actually raise from your climb? Yeah. So, well, my goal was to raise $1,400 per mountain. So, um, you know, kind of in line with the idea of 14ers. Um, and if you do some quick math, 1,400 times 58 is about $82,000. Um, and donations are still coming in, but I believe to this date, we have raised just over $92,000. Wow. wow. So far exceeding my wildest wow. dreams. Yes. Um, and even that financial goal. And I'm so happy to hear that that uh, donations are still coming in at this point. It's over, it's done with, and it's still active. I know. So that's <laughs> really exciting. Good. So so let's get into some of the uh, the details on this. How does one train for this type of undertaking? Oh, great question. So Fortunately, um, I was already pretty familiar with this type of activity. Um, I grew up in Appalachia, so more outdoors than indoors, to be honest. And I've all, I'm also just an avid backpacker. So I've done a number of what are called through hikes in my life, including like the Appalachian Trail, the Camino de Santiago. So I feel very comfortable going out and just kind of living in the wilderness for long. Hang on here. Hang on here a second. I want to point out that the trail you're talking about is over 2,000 miles. Right, uh, yeah. It took over four months to do. Four months. Whoa. And you just casually say Camino de Santiago, (laughs) but let's point out that's over 500 miles through France and Spain. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So it it goes by so, so softly off your, uh, (laughs) when you're talking, but that's a big accomplishment (laughs) in itself. So certainly you were in shape. So that's good. Okay. Continue. Right. And and I just love these kind of activities, right? And I just love being surrounded by this awe-inspiring nature and wilderness. Um, However, so I guess just to prepare for this in general, um, I was already pretty in shape, um, but I'm also a triathlete. So preparing for something like this, you know, you really got to focus on your knees. So I did a lot in like joints in general. I did a lot of strength training for my knees and my ankles. Um, but also just doing that kind of rotating, uh, cardio from cycling to swimming to running. I think that really helped build up my lung capacity because one of the biggest, um, factors and challenges of hiking these mountains is the elevation. And, um, you know, whenever you're climbing up to 14,000 feet every day, uh, you have to really grapple with altitude sickness. And that was a real serious challenge early on in the project. 
Um, but I had a confidence that if I kept going, I would get accustomed to it. Um, but there's no way that you can really prepare for that. You kind of just got to go out, take it slow, know your boundaries, and kind of have a, a strict go or no-go policy whenever you start to feel it. Yes, altitude can really mess with you. It really can. Um, so what other kind of challenges did you have? Was there... Was it, on the... Uh, mm-hmm. Like was yeah, weather so a just, factor or anything else? Totally. That's That was going to be the first one that okay. I, I pointed out. <laughs> so um, one of the things about this project in general, in comparison to some of the other um like long sales I've done was just the logistical planning of it. You know, I was, I was living in my car all summer and my day to day schedule was basically wake up really early, like 3 a.m., hike to the top of one of these mountains, get down early and then drive to the next mountain. So logistics was a huge, um, was a huge challenge because roads were like huge physical barriers to know, like, can my car make it to the trailhead? Where is the trailhead? Sometimes, you know, you'd climb a mountain and you would see the next peak that you were going to do the next day, Mm. but the trailhead was on the other side of the range. So you Mm. had to literally drive something like four hours around the entire range to get there. So I would say logistics in general was a huge challenge. But then you also had, you know, Mother Nature. And so um, the climbing season for these mountains is very narrow. You can pretty much only count on July and August. Um, to be snow-free on these peaks. Um, unfortunately, though, those months also coincide with what's called Colorado's monsoon season. Mm. So every single day, you can expect a pretty bad thunderstorm to roll in anywhere between like noon and 3 p.m. And above treeline at 14,000 feet is not where you want to be yeah. where whenever one of these storms rolls in. Um, so always had to keep a close eye on the weather, always had to look at the forecast and also, you know, be prepared to turn back if it looked like it was going to, um, if, if there was going to be a, a thunderstorm. Did you experience uh, that, that where you had to turn back? Um, I was really fortunate. I think I only saw one thunderstorm and I was like already descending and I was already oh, in tree line. Good. Um, but there was one time, yeah, I, I do remember being nervous. Fortunately though, you know, this was my, this is basically my job all summer. So Getting out there, getting started early was never um, too big of an issue. Also, this summer, we had a very dry summer. Um, so I didn't have to deal with thunderstorms too much. But you may have heard that we had quite a few um, forest fires out in Colorado, mm-hmm. which really turned around my plans. So, um, you know, it was absolutely devastating to see um, to see these forest fires. And I remember I was actually up on a peak whenever um, one of them started and it wasn't anywhere near where my trail was, but it was so surreal to be on this peak and to look across the valley and see this huge plume coming up and um, not truly understanding what it was because I'd I'd never experienced anything like Mm. that. Um, But then, you know, that smoke, it spread out. It made it very difficult to climb just because you couldn't breathe. And then obviously a lot of um, roads and things were closed. So, it changed my itinerary quite a bit. Um, and so I had to go south a lot sooner than I thought I would. Um, and there was always the concern that like I might not be able to finish this project in one summer, which from the get-go was already an ambitious feat. 
Like people, many people don't climb these in one year. Like very few people do. In fact, for many people, this is a a lifelong goal to climb all 58 of the 14ers. Um, So to do it in one season is just, it's almost unheard of. Um, But in addition to that, you know, Whenever September hit, I really started to get nervous because September is such a wild card out here weather-wise because you could have a snowstorm roll in at any time, and that's that's the end of the hiking season, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of what happened. So all of a sudden, it seemed like Colorado was ablaze, mm-hmm. and then one day, it started snowing in early September, and it did not stop for like five days. Um and I really thought that that was going to be the end of the project. You know, um, I was not prepared to hike in like waist deep snow. Um, and we went out and we tried a couple times and we just turned back because the snowpack was just so loose and so soft and it was impossible, um, to get through. And I really had this, this feeling like, Oh my gosh, I, I came so close. I think at that time when we had the snowstorm, I only had like eight mountains left. Um, but you know, out in Colorado, we have um, we were famous for the sun, and fortunately, the famous Colorado sun came out, and it stayed out, and we didn't get any snow for the rest of September. So uh, I was able to finish the project, and uh, yeah, that that sun melted a lot of of the snow that we got that that early storm. That that's just unbelievable. And you know, one of my questions was going to be any scary moments, but you just you just told me a million of them. So, uh, you know, and the other thing about this, again, I'm just pointing out to our listeners, because you're you're just so casual about this. And that's a credit to you. But it's like when you say in the season, we're not talking about a huge season, we're talking July to September. So um, so it is quite, quite an accomplishment what you did. And I'm curious, how was this all organized as far as setting up the climbs? I don't know if you had a crew to help you, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, that was another thing about this project. I did not know how it was going to go because it all came together so quickly. The only reason I even, you know, had the idea to do this was because of COVID and because of this it, very much like this huge need that was not being talked about around the world. And so um, for me, I really was worried that it was never going to gain traction. I didn't think that anyone was going to donate. I thought if I was able to raise $5,000, I would be happy with that accomplishment. Um, But I think I had the idea, yeah, something in like late April, and I mentioned it to Shelterbox. And one of the good things about Shelterbox and one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to volunteer with them from the get-go was because it is so volunteer-run. It's a relatively small organization, and it's a relatively young organization in terms of um, humanitarian aid organizations. Um, and the ambassadors across um, the volunteer group, you know, they have taken on a number of crazy physical challenges with this box. And so whenever I learned that it was already in the culture of the organization for volunteers to take on some pretty fun physical challenges with the box, I was like, oh, well, it's not so much a question of if I'll do a physical challenge, but what it will be and when. As I've already mentioned, that physical challenges are kind of uh, a thing for me. Mm -hmm. And any way that I can combine my passion for service with my love of the outdoors, it's just, you know, irresistible. And so... um, 
I didn't know what it would be or when it would be, but whenever COVID happened, I was sitting there looking out the mountains, and I was like, this, this is it. Like, this has to be it, and this is the perfect time. We really need something like this. And um, so I, I contacted Shelterbox, and they were so, so supportive. You know, something I think a lot of people don't realize on top of climbing these mountains was that I was also given, giving presentations throughout this project. So um, Rotary is a very close partner with Shelterbox. Shelterbox uh, was actually born out of a Rotary club in England. And so I was giving presentations to all kinds of different clubs. Um, and one of the nice things about COVID was because everyone was virtual, I could do this almost anywhere. In fact, I was giving presentations sometimes on the peak of these mountains. So that was kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, you get pretty good service at 14,000 feet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, so um, I had this this team of local shelter box ambassadors who were really helping to organize meetings for me. You know, they were, they were finding places um, for me to like wash my clothes um, or they would bring me food. Um, they would set, yeah, like I said, they would set up meetings. Um, in addition, I was also, um, uh, kind of my, my fundraising scheme was to get, uh, organizations and groups to actually sponsor a mountain through a donation of $1,400. And by doing that, I would also take something of theirs to the top. So like a little banner or some type of token or keepsake. So I had a lot of wonderful volunteers actually drive me mm. these keepsakes. And, it, you know, I, I was the one out there climbing, but this was by no means a solo effort. It was like definitely a team effort. Um, and beyond just the shelter box um, community that I had, I also just had a number of friends from different chapters of my life hear what I was doing and ask if they could come out and climb with me. Um, I had people just read about what I was doing, like total strangers reach out and say they wanted to be a part of it, as well as just people I met on the mountain. You know, the hiking community is super positive and super encouraging. And I, I talked to so many people just on the mountainside who were impassioned by what I was doing. And they were like, oh, I have to be a part of this. And they came out and joined me for a number of climbs. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of created my own little family out there. And I, I truly, I, I think that was by far the best part of this entire experience was this unique community that came together to rally behind what I was doing. Well, there you go again, answering one of my questions <laughs> that I had in mind. One was besides raising the money, what were the rewards of the climb? And it sounds like you had several, several uh, especially the family aspect of it. So, so let's go back a little bit. How did you start climbing? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't really remember. I mean, I grew up on a farm, so I always loved being outdoors. And um, I was always in love with this idea that you could just start somewhere and just keep walking and get somewhere else. Because I, I, I don't know. It, it seems obvious, but so few people take on uh, a, an adventure like that. And so growing up in Appalachia, I knew that one day I wanted to do the Appalachian Trail. That was a very legitimate goal. Um, but in terms of like back, um, back wilderness skills, I didn't necessarily have any of those hard skills. Um, so I started out with something like the Camino de Santiago, which while it is a longer trail, it, um, it's kind of a, a nice entry into that sort of activity. 
and just fell in love with it. Loved being able to live out of um, a backpack. And I, I've always kind of embraced this idea of minimalism. And then um, on the Appalachian Trail, there were obviously quite a few more mountains to climb, uh, especially there in the White Mountains up in New Hampshire and Maine. And there's just something so rewarding about mountain climbing that's unlike anything else. You know, if you're talking about um, goal setting, you know, there's so few goals, well, especially like in our in our day-to-day life, right? The challenges that we face are so often these like abstract challenges that are very hard to, very hard to know sometimes if you're making any progress at all or where to even begin to start to, to solve them, right? But with a mountain, like you look at that mountain and you see the peak and that goal is so clear and so obvious. And you know that if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you are eventually going to make it to the top. Um, but like, I, I, I'm interested, I, I'm interested oh, in, you know, that's all fine to say. And I picture that and I think, wow, now I want to go climb a 14,000 foot uh, mountain, but there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. So, I mean, did you originally start by going to some of these facilities that have the, the, the rock climbing walls or how did you actually learn to climb? That's different than, than hiking or walking. Well, um, I mean, a lot of mountaineering is just walking. I would say, I mean, some of these mountains are definitely more technical and fortunately coming from Kentucky, um, I was, just around the corner of what's called Red River Gorge. So yeah, I, I did grow up climbing, and this is kind of a mecca for um, rock climbing, not only across the U.S., but around the world. So I was very fortunate, I guess, to have that in my backyard and already feel skilled and comfortable on a wall and doing some of those more technical moves. Um, but I would argue that just that addictive feeling of getting to the top and knowing that, you know, if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to get there. Um, was something that I could apply to every aspect of my life. Um, and that addictive feeling was something that I guess I felt when I first started climbing mountains and is something that has continued to fuel that fire since. Have you ever taken any big falls or injuries? Uh, fortunately, no. But there were some of these, some of these mountains, you know, you did have to gear up. You'd have to wear helmets. There was a huge potential for rock fall, lots of exposure. You wouldn't want to go alone on some of these climbs. So mm-hmm. always taking precautions for those type of, yeah. What's your, what's your favorite gear for getting into the sport? My favorite gear? Yeah, for getting into the sport. Mm, well, I would say a good pair of shoes. Um, and hiking poles would probably be two solid items that I would recommend for anyone who wanted to try to go out and do this. Um, you know, mountain climbing, it's, uh, it's up and then it's down. So that's very hard on your joints. So you want to make sure that you have in like poles to share that weight. Even if you're not carrying weight on your back, I think that having some type of stick or pole to balance and share your weight is like, um, a must. Uh, and then obviously good shoes. Um, I wear actually just trail runners. So something with, with good grip um, is something that I would recommend more than something with like huge amounts of ankle support. 
So I want to just touch and we're almost out of time here. So just briefly, um, you, you say my mission is to be of service wherever there is a need and just maybe in brief, I, I know you've done things like uh, leading a community project in Mexico and facilitating outdoor education programs in Thailand. Uh, can you give me just maybe a, a couple sentences about that experience? Yeah, of course. Um, so after graduating, I, well, for my undergraduate, I studied nonprofit administration. So, and I also studied Spanish. And after graduating, I just had the great fortune um, to get different grants and fellowships um, working in different communities around the world. Um, primarily, they were in education, but I also got to work with refugees as well as um, on, like, women's empowerment projects. And I think one of the most formidable years or one of the most formidable experiences for me was when I moved to Myanmar. I was actually working with Buddhist nuns and... Um, you know, I was talking about minimalism a little bit earlier, but uh, I think they really solidified this idea of less is more, and you can have nothing, but you can give so much. And these women truly defined what it meant to be, um, you know, a, a, a movement of change, I would say, in one's community. And, um, yeah, I think that that really just planted the seed to want to do more and to want to live simply, but to always try to give. And and that's so noble. And, um, you know, the work you do helping others is glorious, but how do you make a living? Um, well, I think it's a good question. I often ask myself that, and I think that for, if you're giving, you know, you will be provided for. Um, I'm not someone who's very money driven. Like, obviously, you need to have money to pay for basic bills and things. Um, but I've also, I never feel like I, I need too much. I think that my expectations and um, what I need to feel fulfilled in my life um, is based more on intangible things. Um, but I've also just been very fortunate in my life that whenever I needed something, somehow, it was provided in one way or other. Okay. So, uh, what do you feel is the impact that you make? Uh, well, um, hopefully, uh, I am able to inspire other individuals to do, to follow their own passions and to do something with them. Um, and in addition to that, um, I would say that being able to provide, you know, over $90,000, the shelter box goes to being able to provide for other vulnerable communities and individuals around the world. Um, so that money is being used to actually provide shelter boxes, which include things like shelter as well as water, cooking equipment, um, and blankets and warmth and, you know, some, some basic semblance mm -hmm. of a, of a community again. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about that. And as soon as I finish with you here, um, we always do a nonprofit spotlight, and we're going to spotlight Shelterbox. But uh, just a couple more questions here, and we'll close up. But I read the Olympics is planning on including climbing. Any desire to participate? <laughs> well, no, I would say not. <laughs> For one, I've never considered myself to be very fast 
climber. And secondly, I'm, I'm not a very competitive person. Oh. So I can't imagine that I would ever um, qualify to be one of the elite climbers for well, the Olympics. That's what, very interesting. Though. Yeah, it is. So what is next on your horizon? Any upcoming mountain adventures or fun projects? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, so I think one of the things about this project was that it solidified that these peaks will definitely not be the last peaks that me and that box see together. Um, so we're already talking about what the next project will, will be, and we are looking eastward um, for this next year, for this year, um, to maybe do the White Mountains. So in New Hampshire, there are 48 peaks above 4,000 feet. So we are looking at taking the box there to climb those in September. So definitely stay tuned for that. <laughs> we will. And we wish you lots of luck with that. And thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you. And as mentioned, our nonprofit spotlight will center on Shelterbox. And we've talked a lot about it, so I'm, I don't want to be too redundant here. But, but I do want to point out that they respond to any kind of urgent need, such as earthquake, volcano, flood, hurricane, cyclone, tsunami, or any kind of conflict by delivering these boxes. And as mentioned, these boxes contain the blankets, the emergency lighting, and other tools for survival. Additionally, shelter is critical to reducing the spread of COVID-19. Shelterbox is working with partners in all kinds of areas to tackle the challenges and adapt to the changing circumstances during this pandemic, uh, including they provide social distancing tips and approach this from getting families out of overcrowded collective centers, again, by these boxes, and their teams are even customizing their packages to include soap and hand-washing basins. And let's see what else. Um, encouraging the personal protective equipment and teaching about health and hygiene practices. So if you'd want more information or to donate, it's shelterboxusa.org. Shelterboxusa.org. Well, it's time to high-five and say goodbye. Check us out on all major platforms or at our website, triangle411.buzzsprout.com, to hear everything you need to know about the COVID-19 vaccine, unique Valentine gift ideas, and a fun one, ghosts. Yes, they are real. I'm Mary Innsbrucker for Triangle 411. Today, dot, 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 be inspired.